1: I'm Ore Ugumbi
0: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: <sighs> Ads. We all hate them. We're all trying to skip them, even if it costs us. It's forcing the entire industry to change. And everyone, from The Economist to the tech giants, has got to get creative.
0: And if your notion of Christmas includes stockings hung by the chimney with care, well, you've got a 19th century American activist to thank. We look at a partisan poem that standardized and cemented what seem like ancient traditions. But first, A slow and sometimes cruel decline. Cells that year by year replicate less and less well. Pains that arise, return, worsen, become constant. The onset of disease, maladies both of the mind and the body, and ultimately death. It sounds terrifying, right? Let me use different words. Getting old. It's not for the faint of heart. Helpfully, lots of research is going into it, slowing it, stopping it, even reversing
2: it. For centuries, if not millennia, people have dreamed of an elixir of life.
0: Jeffrey Carr is The Economist's science editor at large.
2: Recent scientific discoveries have suggested that... An elixir or a set of possible elixirs that look as though they will extend a healthy human lifespan, certainly by years and possibly by decades and possibly longer, perhaps, than anyone who is known has already lived, are on the cards. So what you're talking about
0: is adding more life to your years rather than just adding years to your life.
2: Very neat, yes. An evolutionary encapsulation of why any organism grows old is that it's going to die Anyway, and so it has a life course shaped by natural selection, which puts off, as far as possible, nasty diseases until a point where the animal will be dead anyway. Uh, or at least have reproduced. Yes, a lot of the diseases of old age are there because simply because you've got old. We have, with modern medicine, extended human lifespans to the point where those diseases are now appearing. The distinction for the elixirs of life is that they tinker with the physiological process of ageing and thus, with luck, will push those processes, those diseases further into the future and thus extend not only lifespan, but healthy lifespan. I suppose it's worthwhile dialing back to figure out why
0: it is we die in the first place.
2: So life is a trade-off between survival and reproduction. If you don't reproduce, you don't get new genes into the next generation, and you might as well be dead anyway. On the other hand, if you die, you don't get your genes in the next generation unless you've already reproduced. So for most organisms there is a peak point where everything works to perfection which for humans would be in their late teens and early 20s things go downhill after that as the selective pressure on the organism decreases since it's already reproduced but what is the what's the actual mechanism here i mean it's easy to
0: imagine the human body as merely a machine the machine wears out
2: Yes, but biological bodies are capable of self repair, unlike machines. But repair is physiologically expensive, it has to be invested in, and that can take away from the things you need to do to be able to reproduce. There's a trade off. There are notable diseases of old age, you know, things like Alzheimer's that manifest in old age, and particularly cancer as well. As you get older, Everything tends to go downhill because there's no evolutionary pressure to keep one bit of it going at the expense of the rest. It's a winding down of all the repair processes and a winding up of things like inflammation, which are supposed to be repair processes but can go wrong if they get the wrong signals. You have mentioned tantalizingly
0: elixirs of life. What are the sort of roots of study here to get to that?
2: Well, there are several. The most immediately promising ones are some molecules which seem to mimic the one way that we do know actually does prolong the life of an animal, and that is to almost to starve it. If you restrict the calories that an animal can consume, it will live longer. And this has been shown to be true for a wide range of animals ranging from tiny little threadworms to other mammals. So if you can mimic that with a chemical, and it looks as though you can, then you don't have the problem of persuading people that it's actually worth living, you know, actually eating very much. Right. And what else then besides limiting calorie intake or, or mimicking that? One of the main anti-cancer mechanisms is that there's a little clock inside every cell which stops... It's dividing so that it can't run away and become cancerous. And sometimes that mechanism goes wrong and then you get a cancer. But mostly what happens is that the cells carry on dividing. They get to 60 and then they stop. And they should then be cleared away by the immune system. But that doesn't always happen and they give out noxious chemicals which damage the cells around them. And they seem to be a significant part of aging. Now, there are a a set of molecules which are known in other animals to kill these things quite specifically, and they prolong life by doing so. So this is a promising approach for human beings. Much more speculatively, it's possible to look at the idea of actually de-aging cells, something which, if you could make it work, would open up the idea that you could continuously rejuvenate tissue. And if you continuously rejuvenate tissue, maybe you really can live indefinitely. That word,
0: indefinitely, comes with all kinds of implications. If some imagined drug could stop people aging, stop them dying, the world would suddenly look very different how people live those long, maybe indefinitely long lives, would change overnight. Let's do a little thought experiment. If that drug existed today, and you could give it to everyone, put it in the water supply, say, would you do it?
2: I don't think I would, actually. I don't think I would give this drug to everyone. I'm not even sure I would take it myself.
0: Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia editor and presenter of our podcast series Last Year in Moscow.
3: I think ageing, like death, is so much part of life. The world will get very crowded, and I think all our life experience is shaped completely by
2: death and the knowledge of death. And I think death is, is what defines life in many
4: ways. Do I choose to put the drug in the water supply?
0: Our international editor, Miranda Mitra, agrees.
4: No, I just think that ramifications are too massive in terms of political organisation and how power is meted out and structured. There are already plenty of leaders who don't step down when they should and try to cling to power for decades. And then on a more personal level, how would families be structured? What would relationships look like? How would fertility be considered and would there then be a kind of limit on the number of children that could be born
0: this wasn't the unanimous view we asked emma hogan our america's editor the same question would she give the elixir of life to everyone
4: absolutely aging is already a huge burden on society in terms of medical care dementia is an increasing problem in parts of the world and I think that physical strength is is, is a great thing. And, and I'm speaking totally selfishly here, but I would I would like to have it for longer.
5: On the one hand, it would be great. It would be like we were living in paradise. Idris Colun co-hosts
0: Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics.
5: But if we are in a world where everyone is young and 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 living forever and also producing kids, I think Malthus has been proven wrong in his prediction that overpopulation was a real threat to the world. But in this case, at some point, he's right. And if we had this drug in in widespread use, then maybe we would hit that point. So I'm pretty uncertain.
0: All this really does raise thorny questions, especially as research pushes this from the hypothetical into the potentially urgent. So what does the world look like when there are that many people living longer and longer lives?
2: Well, it's very hard to say. It would depend on how technology develops, for example. Geoffrey Carr again. These people will have to be fed and amused, and they will be able to purchase the things that they need if there is the labour to produce those things. Now... If the labour involved is human, then you're going to have some sort of conflict and the economy will adjust accordingly. People will have to, even people who've built up a reasonable amount of money, will have to work longer because the price of labour will just go up. So you would expect longer working lives as well as longer post-working lives. You've, you've engaged in the thought
0: experiment about some of the economics, the labour force, and so on. What about politics, though? If if the the changing demographic, how do you govern a a, a, a society that is suddenly, on
2: average, a lot older? Well, it wouldn't suddenly be a lot older. Okay, this would fair. be a gradual process. Well, I mean, that's an important point because you know, successful politics is evolutionary. But it, but nevertheless, it, it seems quite likely that the yeah reductio ad absurdum, that the interests of a 200-year-old and the interests of a 20-year-old will not coincide. Politics is ultimately animal behavior. People in power tend not to wish to cede it. Getting too old for it is one way of getting rid of people. If that is no longer relevant, then there might be a risk of a power elite just hanging on to power because they're never going to age out of it. And there might be a risk that that would be, those who had first mover advantage when the elixirs of life became available.
0: Getting on to a, a more sort of pointedly moral question. If the end of life for so many people is a miserable business, is there a moral imperative to pursue this stuff? We've, we've talked about all the sort of risks that come with it, but do we have to try it anyway so as to increase the net happiness of
2: humanity? Well, I don't know who is we in this question. This is something that is just happening, that as, as with all... Uh, is all there, in an men- abstract sense, uh, a, a moral imperative to pursue this, if it is I possible? I think there's a moral imperative to pursue anything that will make, make for uh, healthier, happier, and longer-lived human beings, yes. Whether this is the most important in a world of scarce resources, whether whether this is more important than, say, finding a reliable way of getting rid of malaria is the sort of thing that might engage philosophers. But in practice, the pool of money that's going to go to malaria, the pool of money that's going to go to this almost completely independent. The genie is at least partly out of the bottle. Yes, the genie is out of the bottle. Going back to the calorie restriction analogs, these clearly work in a wide range of animals. And somebody's trying to get a a human trial going. There are also small human trials planned of the analytic drugs. So we should have some human data in a few years' time with a bit of luck. I suppose, as every other self-respecting, self-preservational
0: animal, you'd be into this. You would take these drugs, you would extend your life if given
2: chance. It's something I'm thinking about. I haven't done it yet. There are other ways to extend your life which are more immediately available, such as a good diet and exercise. But... It's certainly something I'm keeping an eye on, and maybe we can have this discussion in a year or two's time. Or 30, or 50, or 100. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Jeff, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Earlier this year, our sister show, Babbage, ran an episode about the search for the ways to extend human lifespans. In it, host Alok Ja speaks with tech billionaires experimenting on themselves and finds the scientists exploring different approaches to combating old age. Economist Plus subscribers will find that by searching for Immortality in the Babbage feed.
5: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.
1: The holidays a time of warmth merriment and of course gifts we've all had some pretty mediocre presents over the years
0: oh man socks again
1: for a better idea about what to get your loved ones you could ask to look at their facebook feed after all social networks monitor our behavior so intimately that they can target users with personalized ads with a precision that's sometimes almost eerie. That's the trade-off for getting to use these platforms for free. Yet increasingly, those with deep enough pockets are getting the chance to escape the online advertisers.
3: Last month, Meta, which is the owner of social networks like Facebook and Instagram, began offering its customers in Europe the option of going ad-free if they were willing to pay a monthly fee.
1: Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor.
3: And they're not alone. Twitter, which we now have to call X, launched a similar tier earlier this year. And TikTok and Snapchat are trialling ad-free versions of their own. So we're in this world where increasingly it will be possible to avoid adverts online altogether if you're willing to pay. And advertisers are scrambling to find new ways to reach rich customers.
1: Why do they need new ways? Are the traditional mediums no longer suitable?
3: Well, some are. I mean, there's newspapers, there's radio, there's podcasts, obviously. But those media have been turning away a bit from ads as well. And this is a a long-term trend. It's been going on for a decade or more. But we've seen that with news, for example, a lot of online news sources have been gradually pivoting away from ad revenue towards subscriptions. Advertising online basically doesn't bring in the money that it used to, and so subscriptions are increasingly appealing. I saw an interesting study by the Reuters Institute at Oxford University, which found that about a decade ago, around 5% of people in rich countries were paying for a subscription to an online news site. And these days that figure is more like 13%. So there's an increase there. Radio-wise, we've seen something similar happen. You know, a lot of people now, instead of listening to radio with ads, will listen to a service like Spotify, where you can get your music. And about 40% of Spotify users pay uh, $11 or so per month to listen without ads. So it's getting harder to catch people on those old media as well.
1: And how about TV?
3: Well, something similar is going on on TV too. I mean, as we all know, there's this great big digital transition underway in television from uh, broadcast TV and cable TV to streaming. And the big difference there is that linear TV, so that's broadcasting cable, is absolutely stuffed with ads, particularly in the States. You can watch maybe 15 minutes of ads per hour, whereas streaming is largely ad-free. It varies a bit, and the streamers are getting a bit more into ads. You know, Netflix and Disney both launched ad-free tiers a year or so ago Um, but people are still much less likely to watch ads on streaming than they were on the old tv formats
1: okay but let's go back to the social media giants like meta why are they increasingly turning to subscription-based services when the ad supported strategy had been so successful for them up until now
3: There are a few reasons. and In Meta's case, it's very much doing this kicking and screaming. Its reason is that in Europe, in the past year or so, there's been a series of court judgments which have essentially made it harder for Meta to serve up behavioral ads to people, targeted ads, that is. And those judgments are, are complicated. But the upshot is that judges have decided that companies like Meta have to offer people a clearer way to opt out of that kind of advertising if they want to. And Meta's solution is to say, okay, you can opt out of our behavioral ads, but it's going to cost you. You're going to have to pay 10 euros or so per month for an ad free version. And they've been clear that they don't particularly want to do this and they're not going to offer it anywhere else unless they have to. But it's interesting, as always, I think it's worth watching other jurisdictions to see if anyone else follows the lead of the European Union. And various people I've spoken to in the tech world have their eye on countries like Britain, India, Brazil, Indonesia, Australia, various places where governments are sharpening up their digital privacy laws.
1: Okay, so it's mostly because of government legislation.
3: Well, it is in Meta's case, but there's something else going on too as well, which is that tech platforms, uh, principally Apple and Google, are making it harder for advertising to work as well. So a couple of years ago, Apple introduced this big change where you can now opt out of being tracked. And that makes it much harder for advertisers to target you with behavioral ads because they don't know what you like anymore, basically. And Google is is planning something similar. And that change has triggered a sort of rush among apps and online businesses. So, for instance, in the mobile games business, which is a, a huge part of the app economy, We've seen a lot of those games shift more towards other forms of monetization, subscription being one, in-app purchases being another. So that's buying power-ups and access to new levels, that kind of thing.
1: But when things have been free for so long, do you get a sense that consumers will be willing to pay?
3: It's a really interesting question. and, And the answer so far is we don't really know. But I mean, you're right, Facebook's been around now for nearly 20 years and it's been free all this time. And a lot of people I spoke to said that they found it hard to imagine that people in the EU where they now have this choice are are going to take up this offer in droves to pay 10 euros a month for something that has always been free. We'll see. Um, I mean, one counterpoint that I think is worth bearing in mind is YouTube, which again is historically a free ad supported service, but they have this subscription ad free option, which in recent years they've been promoting pretty heavily and it's pretty expensive. I mean, in the States it's 13.99 a month to go ad free on YouTube. But YouTube said last year that 80 million people now subscribe to this.
1: Okay, so if I were a company trying to reach consumers, what would you suggest I do?
3: Well, ad people I spoke to weren't too depressed about this. Ad people also can go to other forms of media which have been less disrupted. So spending on out-of-home media, which basically means billboards, posters, that kind of thing, that's been growing quite fast. Because whether you're rich or poor, you can't avoid looking at billboards when you walk around outside. Um, Following a similar logic, there are things like sponsorship of sports events. That's been growing too. But I think the most interesting area, really, is places where previously we didn't really see ads at all. Last year, Uber started selling ads in its app for for both ride-hailing and delivery. And already this has become really quite a big business. Next year, they expect to make about a billion dollars from this advertising sideline, which is just a couple of years old. We're seeing other companies do similar things. So United Airlines have said that they are going to start selling ad space uh, on the little screens on the backs of people's seats, because again, they know something about their customers and they can sell targeted ads. Marriott Hotels is going to do something similar with ads on TV screens in hotel rooms. So I think the moral of the story is you can pay increasingly to opt out of ads in some places online, but the ad men are going to find new ways to get you.
1: Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. for a little something to listen to while you wrap presents this weekend or on your long journeys home for the holidays, I've got something for you. Well, for our subscribers anyway. On this Saturday's episode of The Weekend Intelligence, our correspondent will be investigating And Tango Makes Three, a book about a penguin chick being raised by two dads, a book which has somehow become one of the most banned in America.
6: It's arguably the most famous poem in the English language. As famous as Christmas itself. All I need to say is a single word and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Twas. You know the rest, and probably quite a bit of it.
1: Max Norman is a culture correspondent for The Economist.
6: A visit from St. Nicholas, better known by its first line, Twas the Night Before Christmas, was published 200 years ago, on December 23rd, 1823. It's been much cherished, much recited ever since. But the poem is not just a jolly bit of festive verse. It's actually influenced much of modern Christmas as we know it.
4: "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there."
6: Despite its global reach, the poem was published quite out of the way in upstate New York in a little town called Troy in their local newspaper, The Sentinel. Troy is best known now for the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and recently as a location on the Gilded Age TV series. Back in the day, it was a major industrial center in the Northeast. Earlier this month, on a cold, rainy Sunday, I drove up from New York City to Troy, and saw their annual holiday festival where they were honoring not just the holiday season but also their most famous export this poem despite miserable weather it was a festive occasion there were little shops selling their wares there were people selling roasted chestnuts and toward the evening there was a big tree lighting ceremony at which the Troy High School choir performed christmas carols Later, the mayor of Troy himself recited the poem. Do
5: you know the words? Please join in with
4: me. T'was the night before Christmas went all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse.
6: The extraordinary fame of this poem is actually quite an accident. It was published anonymously first, and it wasn't until 1844 that the author publicly revealed himself as a patrician Manhattanite called Clement Clark Moore. Moore really never intended the poem to have an audience greater than his six children, but a family friend, at least according to the prevailing theory, copied it out of an album and sent it to the Troy Sentinel without his permission. Moore was part of an upper-crust group known as the Knickerbockers after a character in a famous fictional satirical history of New York by his friend and fellow Christmas booster, Washington Irving. In the early 19th century, Christmas was not nearly as widespread or as uniform as it is now, and the Knickerbockers sought to revive it and to reshape it. You could even see Twas as a kind of volley in a really long war over Christmas— that began in the United States, at least, in the colonial period, and continues in one form or another until the present. Christmas has always been a contestant holiday, above all because there's no mention of it in the Bible. It's also entangled with a complex pagan heritage, piggybacking on a few pre-Christian festivals, most notably Saturnalia, which happens at the same time of the year. But by late antiquity and through the Middle Ages, it was celebrated, and usually in December. In the Protestant Reformation, however, many... Took issue with the holiday anew because it had no biblical basis. There was a lot of anti Christmas sentiment among religious Americans all the way until the 19th century. Part of the problem, too, was Christmas never really shook its Saturnalian heritage of indulgence, drinking, and also what you might call ritual misrule. So historically, Christmas time. The poor would knock on the doors of the rich, even enter their houses, demand food, drink, sometimes even money. This is a ritual called wassail, celebrated in the U.K. on Twelfth Night. And in the U.S., the tradition existed too. And in Moores, New York, during Christmas time, gangs of carousing people would go through the wealthy neighborhoods. The Knickerbockers sought to do away with this noisy, menacing tradition. I spoke to a number of Christmas historians, anthropologists, literary scholars. And they described how Moore's poem transformed this public, rowdy celebration, something that happened on the streets, into a respectable, domestic, child-friendly holiday. He really is a foundational writer for our conception of Christmas and the holiday season as something largely about children, gifts, home, and relatively less about the religion itself. So Twas, despite its jingle jangle rhyme, is really more sophisticated than its 56 lines let on in their tripping, anapestic tetrameter that is da-da-da, 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 and so on. Moore sets this poem inside the house, which throughout the course of the 19th century would replace the streets and the pub as the site of Christmas festivities. St. Nicholas comes down through the chimney into this peaceful domestic space,
4: Down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot.
6: St. Nick is somewhere between a kind of folkloric creature and the modern department store Santa that we know today. Moore draws the focus away from the holiday subversive spirit and orients it toward gift giving. St. Nick is stripped of his religious associations, which might have been something that allows the poem to spread a little bit more easily among the general population and Christians alike.
4: And his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot, a bundle of toys he had flung on his back. And he looked like a peddler just opening his pack.
6: The poem immediately proved popular. It was widely reprinted in the American press and pretty soon jumped over to England, where it also enjoyed a very broad audience. 200 years on, Mary Miss Rule, Saturnalia, pretty safely consigned to memory. And Clement Clark Moore's Christmas is Now Our Own. But the poem has not yet reached its peak. A Troy native called Sally Vallette has commissioned new translations into some 20 languages. They're being issued in print as well as animated eBooks, complete with holiday music. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has proclaimed the 200th anniversary of the poem's publication, December 23rd, 2023, as Twas the Night Before Christmas Day. The First Lady has integrated the anniversary of this poem into this year's White House holiday decorations, and so early editions of the poem are on display. Twas does not just describe a holiday miracle. When you actually think about this poem's remarkable and unexpected success, it kind of is one, too.
4: He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You're running out of time to take advantage of our 30% discount on gift subscriptions. It's the perfect last-minute present. I know. Some of you are still scrambling, so go on. Visit economist.com slash gift or follow the link in our show notes for more.
0: The editors of The Intelligence are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Sol Rivers. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Lonyuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Peter Granitz. We'll all see you back here for The Weekend Intelligence tomorrow.